Reflections on Isaac Dennison's Babette's Feast by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 She goes off to get provisions, but as she's preparing in all her different ways for this elaborate thing, the story says, By this time, Babette, like the bottled demon of the fairy tale, had swelled and grown to such dimensions that her mistresses felt small before her. They now saw the French dinner coming upon them, a thing of incalculable nature and rain. And all of the goods arrived, and the sisters looking horrified as these things passed by. And the next thing they see is this turtle, this sea turtle, this monstrous sea turtle. And they're horrified, and they gather their their clan together secretly, and they say that this is a witch's Sabbath that is being prepared, and with great apologies for having brought it on. They all agree that they will eat the meal, but they will say nothing about the food or the wine. So few things ever happened in the quiet existence of the Berlevag Brotherhood that they were at this moment deeply moved and elevated. They shook hands on their vow, and it was to them as if they were doing so before the face of their master. They find that they now are together. All of the uh, little backbiting has disappeared momentarily, but this, we must always remember, is a pseudo-community. If it's brought together, if it defines itself vis-a-vis its opposing force, it's a pseudo-community but it's not one that can be convened sacramentally, and it's the sacramental convention of of reconvening the community that this story is all about. Lauren Lovenheim's aunt uh, was an original member of the community, and she is invited to the 100th anniversary. And she, in turn, will invite her nephew, Lawrence, who is now a very famous general, She is a personification of that community. I would suggest that we think of her as a personification of that community. She was one of its first uh, members, and uh, now she's coming to the 100th anniversary. Here's what we find out about her. She was now 90 years old and stone deaf, and she had lost all sense of smell or taste. But she had been one of the dean's first supporters. So it's just a commentary on what has happened. Stone deaf, lost all sense of smell or taste. At this point, we're told that there will be 12 for dinner. And of course, there will be 12 for dinner. (laughs) It's as though Babette uh, understood that from the beginning. And, And she's told that one of them will be this famous general who has spent considerable time in Paris. And Babette is very pleased to find out that a Parisian will be among the guests. And this is central to the mystery of the story because this is not a liturgy she can pull off by herself. So the fact that there's a Parisian among the guests is pleasing to her. The little community gathers in the only room in the house that's still theirs, (laughs) which is the living room, Uh, and they sort of huddle uh, away from Babette's uh, operation. They put a little uh, evergreen wreath over the, the dean's picture, and they sing his favorite hymn. Jerusalem, my heart's true home, your name is forever dear to me. Your kindness is second to none. You keep us clothed and fed. Never would you give a stone to a child who begs for bread. General Lovenheim is now 
preparing to come. There's, the film treats this ni nicely. He's getting dressed. And the ghost of his youth appears, and uh, he is in some controversy with the ghost of his youth because he, f he has been perfectly successful, but he is very imperfectly uh, happy, and he doesn't quite know what to attribute it to. Now, uh, if what happens in the feast is a liturgy, and I think it is, then liturgies traditionally begin with, uh, with uh, recollection, with an examination of conscience, with an anamnesis. See, uh, a remembering of one's life, a re reconsideration of one's life to this point. And so, as we prepare for the liturgy that's about to happen, the, the symbolic liturgy, we're, we're introduced to a little anamnesis, recollection. And General Lovenheim is now having it in, in the form of a, of a dialogue, symbolic dialogue to himself, his elderly self and his youthful self. He has begun to worry about his immortal soul. He can't even believe he's begun to worry about it. It seems like such an absurd worry, but he's begun to have it anyway. And he thinks to himself, as he looks back, he thinks that his life has been uh, morally uh, upright. He, he, he has led a, morally, uh, a life of moral rectitude. But still there's some problem. And the story says... There were moments when it seemed to him that the world was not a moral but a mystic concern. I think that's a, a very important turning point. In the journey, which sometimes can be long and laborious, from the Monday church to the Thursday church, that's midway. Well, one comes to the realization that, that the problem of life is not a moral one but a mystical one. It's only when you get to that point are you ready for what Babette has to offer. If uh, the business of life, the religious business of life even, is a moral concern, then you get into a situation of merit. Almost, uh, almost unavoidably, you get into a situation of merit. By being moral as opposed to its opposite, one... Uh, achieves certain merit that those who aren't don't. It's very difficult not to, to, to live in that morally defined world without getting into the system of merit, which is, of course, a system of comparisons, which is to say it's a mimetic system. It's unavoidably a mimetic system with all of the multitudinous problems of mimetic system. The, the mystical understanding will be will have to be ha, will have to have moral features to it no question about it but i think it's very important uh, to avoid some of the really uh, grievous disasters that come from religious life uh, to make this transition as quickly as possible into the mystical concern as the primary one they're having a dialogue the old lawrence uh, lovenheim and the young lawrence lovenheim Young Lawrence Lovenheim had attracted dreams and fancies as the flower attracts bees and butterflies. He had fought to free himself of them. He had fled them and they had followed. He had been scared of the Hulda of the family legend and had declined her invitation to come into the mountain. He had firmly refused the gift of second sight. The elderly Lauren Lovenheim found himself wishing that one little dream would come his way and a gray moth of dusk 
look him up before nightfall. He found himself longing for the faculty of second sight. See? So there you have it. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says you get to the top of the ladder and you realize it's leaning on the wrong wall. <laughs> Here is a man in need of the sacrament, you see. He, he fought himself clear of all of those fancies and dreams and visions and all of that, and now he's clear of them. And he made up his mind to go with his aunt to this dinner, not casually, but with determination. He said to himself, tonight I'm going to find out once and for all whether the decision I made 31 years ago was the right one. I'm going to have it out with this younger uh, self of mine. And he says, I know when I get there that I'll see the, the, the fish and the glass of water and I'll realize that my existence would have been a disaster if I had stayed there. But as he's going in the, in the sled to the, to the, to the sister's house, he, his mind begins to go back. Remember, this is the anamnesis stage of the process, the recollection stage. He begins to remember this dinner he had. He had won a riding contest in France, and the French officers took him uh, to the finest restaurant in Paris, where the cook was a woman, and where he was given the, the, the most elaborate meal he has ever eaten in his life. And as he remembers this, he's suddenly struck by something. Opposite him at the table that night was a noble lady, a famous beauty whom he had been courting. In the midst of the dinner, she had lifted her dark velvet eyes above the rim of her champagne glass and without words had promised to make him happy. In the sled, he now all of a sudden re remembered that he had then, for a second, seen Martine's face before him and he had rejected it. Which means that this rejection of the Beatrician moment in his youth has been repeated throughout his life. It's the pattern of rejection. The fear that he will somehow come in contact with the hulda that will change everything. And he began by rejecting it when it presented to itself to him it, with Martine, and he has been repeating that rejection all the way through his life. A, a, a repetition which will surprise not very many modern therapists. He has repeated that rejection throughout his life. And the next sentence is this one. Large snowflakes fell densely. Behind the sled, the tracks were wiped out quickly which is the purpose of the anamnesis before the liturgy. The purpose is not to remember it and hang on to it. Dante, you said, see, you said, Dante, you have to drink of Lethe and Unoy. This is the whole mystery. I want to talk about that in a little while. You have to learn how to forget the kind of things that they were remembering. Remember the community was remembering these old wrongs and that kind of stuff, or the old mistakes. And you have to call them up, forget them, and then remember in some other way. And so the anamnesis, the purpose of the anamnesis is to, is to recollect it and then let the snow come along and just wipe that slate clean. Well, under Babette's masterful hand, the Thursday church is about to convene itself. Un 
suspecting members of uh, the dean's community uh, uh, enter timidly and say their grace before meals, which is uh, the epitome of their uh, approach to this thing. May my food my body maintain, may my body my soul sustain, may my soul in deed and word give thanks for all things to the Lord. Amen. And when they said food, they remembered their vow not to say anything about the food. And they thought, well, maybe we can tolerate a little wine because after all, uh, Jesus did somehow consent to use wine at the marriage feast of Cana. So perhaps it'll be okay. So there's, uh, Denison goes out of her way to mention the marriage feast of Cana, so we, I think we can pause for just a second on it. The interesting thing about that story, it really is the story of the movement from the Monday church to the Thursday church. In it it says, there were six stone water jars standing there meant for the ablutions that were customary among the Jews. Each would hold 20 or 30 gallons. So these are the, purification jar, the jars that hold purification water for the cleansing rites. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, which is to say they were empty. The striking thing about this story is that the jars were empty. What uh, the, the, comment, the commentary that we get from this is that the old dispensation is bankrupt. And so Jesus says, fill those jars up with water. Let's start with that. And he takes it to, they take it to the steward and it has become wine. And the steward says to the bridegroom, people generally save, uh, use the best wine first, but you have saved the best wine until now. Now, there's something important about that because uh, the general and the two sisters and the people of the community are about to experience something, which is that the best wine is saved until later. Uh, the world operates on the rumor and the premise that uh, the best wine is the first wine. But the mystery is that it's not. Dante told the world that uh, when you get to the top of the Purgatorial Mountain, you drink the river of Lethe and you forget, and then you drink the river of Unawe and you remember again. And uh, as the wine begins to flow in this little event, exactly that happens. The story says, Usually in Berlevag, people did not speak much while they were eating, but somehow this evening tongues had been loosened, and an older brother told the story of his first meeting with the dean. Another went through the sermon, which 60 years ago had brought about his conversion. An aged woman reminded her friends how in all afflictions any brother or sister was ready to share the burden of any other. So they begin to remember as though they have drunk of the river of Unawi. Another sister remembers, this was in the film as well, she remembers the time. Indeed, it was almost a miracle when our minister had promised to conduct a, Christ a Christmas sermon at the church across the fjord. For two weeks, the weather had been so bad that no captain or fisherman would risk the crossing. The villagers had given up all hope. The minister told them that if no boat would take him, he would walk across them on the waves. And behold, three days before Christmas, the storm abated. A cold spell set in, and the fjord froze from shore to shore. And this had never happened before in any man's memory. But now it's being remembered as almost a miracle. And in the, in the film, it's marvelous. The, the little woman who tells this story, her eyes twinkling. When she finishes it, she picks up that glass of red wine and has another little sip of it. It's a wonderful moment. Babette is the liturgist, but she's behind the scenes. She never comes into the room. 
One never sees Babette during the whole, if you allow me to call it a liturgy, one never sees Babette. But uh, she has a servant boy who serves the table, and she is providing him with instruction. And she cannot perform this liturgy alone. So she instructs the servant boy to give a, only one glass of wine to the, uh, to, to the members of the little community. But he is to refill the general's glass every time it's emptied. And the general emptied it again and again. The story says, For how is a man of sense to behave when he cannot trust his senses? It is better to be drunk than mad. So he continues to drink this wine. And as he does so, he remembers the dinner in Paris as he sees what's set before him. He remembers a dinner in Paris when he had been treated uh, by his uh, fellow uh, cavalry officers to this elaborate dinner at the spe special restaurant. And he explained to them about the restaurant and about the woman who was the chef there. And he says it was the Café Anglais. And the woman, his host had told him that night that the woman who was the chef knew how to uh, turn a dinner into a love affair in which there were no longer distinctions between bodily and spiritual appetites. And he said this one woman had a dish that she herself had invented, which was Kais on Sacrifage. And he points to the, what's before him, and he says, that is before us now. And they, having agreed not to talk about these things, nod. But let's stop, stop for a second. You'll pardon the, my... The, the way my uh, way I butcher the French, but kais uh, means quail. Now, in the Old Testament Exodus story, quail uh, is associated with is is a form of manna, is a is a form of the uh, uh, God's dispensation. The Israelites are barren, lost in the wilderness, so they begin to they begin to hanker for flesh pots of Egypt, which is just a bowl of stew, by the way. And uh, God provides them with quail. These quail fly into the camp and cover the ground, and they gather the quail up. But most of the story has to do with gathering up of, of manna. There are two, in other words, there are two versions that are spliced together, and the manna version has overwhelmed the quail version. But the story begins by a reference to quail, which says that they were lost in the wilderness, forlorn in the wilderness. They pleaded with God, and he sent quail. So we have a quail dish before us. Caes en sacrifage, which means something like a quail in a coffin. If you remember from the film, it's a little pastry. It's really the word sarcophagus. Sarcophagus comes from two Greek words, sarx, or sarka, and the verb to eat, phago. Sarcophagus literally means the eater of flesh. Okay? So we have an Old Testament reference, which is that God feeds his people when they are, when they are uh, in the wilderness and uh, desperate to be nourished. God feeds his people with quail. And this particular quail is in a sarcophagus. And, the, and sarcophagus means the eater of flesh. In the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus says this, 
I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the desert, and they are dead. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. Then the Jews started arguing with one another, How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. And Jesus replied to them, I tell you most solemnly, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. In that passage, the word for flesh is sarx, and the verb to eat is phago. Jesus says you must eat this flesh. Sarcophagus. So we have so the the meal that's being served is a is a rich combination of the whole biblical theme of providing the spiritual and material nourishment at the same moment. When the meal is over, fruit is brought in, and the, the attention is called to this cluster of grapes. The general picks up a big cluster of grapes, and one of the brethren at the table says, and they came unto the brook of Eshkol and cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bear it two upon a staff. That comes from the story in the book of Numbers where the Israelites reach the very threshold of the promised land and they send scouts to reconnoiter what it's like in the promised land. And the scouts find this, this, uh, these great clusters of grapes, so great in fact that they have to carry two of them with one pole with the, grape, uh, the cluster of grapes in the middle. It takes two men to carry out this cluster of grapes. And what that is is a foretaste of the promised land. They carry it back to camp to prove what a rich place the promised land is. It's a very interesting appreciation here. And he quotes that passage. The valley of Eshkol is, in a sense, the, para the, the paradigm of the church. It's the, it, it's, the, it's the foretaste of the promised land. The purpose of the liturgy is to, is to provide that little foretaste of the promised land. And uh, he recognizes that, uh, symbolically recognizes that they have been reconnoitering in the promised land as they've been eating this meal. The general rises at a very solemn moment. The general rises and everybody's eyes are fixed on him. And the story says, they were used to seeing sailors and vagabonds dead drunk with the crass gin of the country. But they did not recognize in a warrior and a courtier the intoxication brought about by the noblest wine of the world. So he gets up to speak. Now this is so, to me, this is so amazing and so important. What is he going to say? Here are the first words that come out of his mouth. Mercy and truth, my friends, have met together. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss one another. Exactly what the dean had said. Not one word is changed. Nothing has to be changed. What has to happen is that it has to become an experience. See? The doctrine doesn't have to be altered. It simply has to become an experience. 
And when it becomes an experience, then it can be said with conviction and it can be passed on. And the story says, the general spoke in a clear voice which had been trained in drill grounds and had echoed sweetly in royal halls. And yet he was speaking in a manner so new to himself and so strangely moving that after his first sentence he had to make a pause. For he was in the habit of forming his speeches with care, conscious of his purpose. But here, in the midst of the dean's simple congregation, it was as if the whole figure of General Lovenheim, his breast covered with decorations, were but a mouthpiece for a message which meant to be brought forth. And here's the message, the, the, the core of this whole story. Man, my friends, is frail and foolish. We have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe. But in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. For this reason, we tremble. If it's finite, you see, there's only so much of it. And if there's only so much of it, very likely there's not enough to go around. If there's not enough to go around, some of us will and some of us won't get it. And we descend very quickly into a mimetic universe. Trying to get it. A competitive universe. Some of us will and some of us won't. And he says, for this reason, since we regard it as finite, for this reason, he says, we tremble. And then the story says, never till now had the general stated that he trembled. He was genuinely surprised and even shocked at hearing his own voice proclaim the fact. We tremble before making our choice in life and after having made it again tremble in fear of having chosen wrong. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Grace, brothers, makes no conditions and singles out none of us in particular. God has no taste. You see. Grace, brothers, makes no conditions and singles out none of us in particular. Grace takes us all to its bosom and proclaims general amnesty. See, that which we have chosen is given us. And that which we have refused is also and at the same time granted us. That which we have rejected is, is poured upon us abundantly. For mercy and truth have met and righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. And he sat down. Now that is the sum and substance of the, of the letters of Paul, the first Christian documents. What was needed, and notice that he begins and ends with a quotation from the dean. What was needed was that the dean's message would be shared by one 
who felt at the core of his being the full uh, significance of them. One who was in the midst of an experience that corresponded with the words, could speak the words and have them convey something. This is the difference. You know, the word I've said so often, the word treason and the word tradition come from the same root. If somebody speaks the, the tradition when it hasn't fundamentally changed their life, they commit treason because the people that receive it from them received uh, flawed goods. They receive something that is uh, that that conveys as much ennui from the speaker as it does conviction. Uh, so that so that to to try to convey it when it hasn't really uh, caused its revolution in us is to be is to uh, betray it. And it says the others did not fully understand him, but they were deeply moved. And that's why Babette needed the general there. Because all of us, because grace is infinite, all of us have, can have this experience. But one has to have, have some kind of preparation for, for giving it articulation, for giving it form, for making art out of it, or making proclamation out of it, or somehow bodying it forth in some way. Everybody can experience it. But, but the general had to be there because he was capable of expressing what had happened. It says what happened later in the evening, of, of what happened later in the evening, nothing definite can be stated. Taciturn old people received the gift of tongues. Ears that for years had been almost deaf were opened to it. Time itself merged into eternity. And the uses of memory were changed. The two old women who had slandered each other now in their hearts went back a long way, past the evil period in which they had been stuck, to those days of their early girlhood when together they had been preparing for confirmation, and hand in hand had filled the roads around Berlevag with singing. Skipper Halverson and Madame Opgarden suddenly found themselves close together in a corner and gave one another that long, long kiss for which the secret, uncertain love affair of their youth had never left them time. That was a beautiful point in the film, wasn't it? That, that kiss. Now, listen to this. The vain illusions of this earth had dissolved before their eyes like smoke, and they had seen the universe as it really is. They had been given one hour of the millennium which is what the liturgy is all about. The liturgy is supposed to give us one hour of that millennium. The vain illusions of this earth had dissolved before their eyes like smoke, and they had seen the universe as it really is. If we had gone and said to the sisters in their community, why are you afraid of... of... Uh, of celebrating. Why are you, would you be afraid of a joyous event, you see, with wine and fine things and something that you regard as luxurious? Why are you afraid of that? And they would have said, we're afraid of that because uh, we will get caught up in it 
and we will become lost in the in the illusions of the world. Remember early on, the very beginning of the story, it said, they renounced the pleasures of this world for the earth and all that it held to them was but a kind of illusion. So they didn't want to get caught up in the illusion. And it is easy to be caught up in in the illusion if it's presented in its kind of in its kind of mundane form. That's the thing about it. Alan Watts once said he said don't tell me America is materialistic. No cult this was in this was in the 60s. He says no culture that eats as much as much sliced white bread could possibly be called materialistic. <laughs> Habet puts this elaborate this elaborate feast before everybody. And guess what the outcome is? The vain illusions of this earth dissolve before their eyes like smoke. And Martine says, quite possibly it will never snow again. And that's how we feel when we have that experience. We feel like, I will never return to the mundane existence that I have been living up till now. And so she said, Perhaps it will never snow again. In this, however, she was mistaken. An hour later, it began to snow, and such a heavy snowfall had never been known in Berlevoort. The next morning, people could hardly push open their doors against the tall snow drifts. The windows of the houses were so thickly covered with snow, it was told for years afterwards that many good citizens of the town did not realize that daybreak had come, but slept on till late in the afternoon. Now, the two things. They're sleeping it off. But also, they did not realize that daybreak had come. And this is always the human condition. This is the human condition. And this is why you, it has, it, it, one has to go back again and again and again. You know, in the 60s, we, there was all this stuff about Maslow's peak experience. You know, Everybody talked about the, as though if you got one, you were in. <laughs> But it's simply not that way. And you think, isn't it ever going to snow again? It's not that way. It, one has to go back. In that same Old Testament story, which tells about God sending the quail, Moses said to them, apropos of the manna, Moses said to them, no one must keep any of it for tomorrow. But some would not listen to Moses and kept part of it for the following day. It bred maggots and smelled foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each according to his needs. But when the sun grew hot, it dissolved. And there's something about the, the, the Eucharistic feast or the Thursday church or the, uh, the whole the spiritual and physical uh, replenishing that's that way. It can't be done once and for all. The bat sat on the chopping block surrounded by more black and greasy pots and pans than her mistresses had ever seen in their life. She was as white and as deadly exhausted as on the night when she had first appeared and fainted on their doorstep. Sitting on the chopping block, white and deadly exhausted. After a long time, she looked straight at them and said, I was once cook at the Café Anglais. And she said, after their inquiry, that she was not going to Paris. And that for two reasons. That the dukes and princes and royalty and famous people of Paris that used to come to the 
to the Café Anglais to eat her magnificent feast were all dead because they had been killed in the revolution. And secondly, because she didn't have any money. And they're astounded that, that she had 10,000 francs and now she has nothing. And she announces with great dignity, the text says, a dinner for 12 at the Café Anglais would cost 10,000 francs. Elliot says it costs not less than everything. Now remember, she's sitting on the chopping block, deadly pale, and they just hear this news. Martine remembered a tale told by a friend of her father's who had been a missionary in Africa. He had sa saved the life of the old chief's favorite wife, and to show his gratitude, the chief had treated him to a rich meal. Only long afterwards, the missionary learned from his own black servant that what he had partaken of was a small, fat grandchild of the chief's cooked in honor of the great Christian medicine man. She shuddered when she thought of it. What we're bordering on here is the, the sisters coming into the inner sanctum and, try, and, and approaching a sacrificial interpretation of what has just happened. You see, this, in a way, without Venus knowing about it, really, she's, she's raising this issue of the early uh, flirtation with a sacrificial interpretation of the Jesus event. And the first thing that Martine thinks of is this story about how it was serving up of the sacrificial victim. But Philippa's heart was melting in her bosom. It seemed that an unforgettable evening was to be finished off with an unforgettable proof of human loyalty and self-sacrifice. So she's make, taking it a little further. Now she says, Dear Babette, you ought not to have given away all you had for our sake. Babette gave her mistress a deep glance, a strange glance. Was there not pity, even scorn, at the bottom of it? For your sake, she replied. No, for my sake. She rose from the chopping block. <laughs> little resurrection image, huh? She rose from the chopping block and said to them, I am a great artist. And artists, a great artist is never poor. And Philippa said, But all those whom you have mentioned, the Parisians, the princes and the great people of Paris, whom you named Babette, you yourself fought against them. You were a communard. The general you named had your husband and son shot. How can you grieve over them? And Babette said, Yes, I was a communard. Thanks be to God I was a communard. And those people whom I named were evil and cruel. They let the people of Paris starve. They oppressed and wronged the poor. Thanks be to God, I stood upon a barricade. I loaded the gun for my menfolk. But all the same, I shall not go back to Paris now that those people of whom I have spoken are no longer there. There's a long moment of silence. And she said, You see... Those people belong to me. They were my people. 
because those people had the training to appreciate the art that is my art. And she said, it was only those people that I could... She said, I, I can make people happy. And when I do my best, I can make them perfectly happy. But it was only those people who, were, who had the preparation for receiving it. I cannot go back. Now, this is a very strange conclusion to this. And it's the kind of conclusion that Isak Dinesen would leave to a story. It's an aristocratic conclusion. And I want to reflect just freely for a second. This is this doesn't even qualify as an interpretation. It's just a, t living the story onward. If she, if Babette is the spirit of the church, if you'll allow that, the Café Anglais is now a movable feast. The church is spread out over the face of the earth and men do not see it. But in the crisis, in the historical convulsion, the church is scandalized. The church realizes that the, between the two forces, there is a morally superior one. And it allies itself with the morally superior one. And it mounts the barricade. And the church literally loads the gun for the menfolk. That's what happened in France. When Babette comes to the Norwegian coast, it's not as though she spends all these years without learning something. If you ask me, she has learned something about what it really means to be a commoner. And she learned it from the two sisters. This is not a story about how the Catholic sensibility is, is superior to the Protestant one. It's a story about how they can be reconciled. And what I think she learns from the two sisters is the real meaning of being a commoner. Not the flashy one. Not the one that plays to the, to the tune of the historical crisis. But the one who, that, that attends to the, to the needs of the poor in the way in which the sisters have. So finally, Babette and this story reconciles the best of the Catholic sensibility with the best of the Protestant sensibility it reconciles the aristocratic sensibility with the communitarian sensibility. It is this spirit of the church who can, who can uh, take the, the humble people and teach them of their nobility and take the, and take the privileged uh, and... and, and, and and the specially talented people and teach them of their common humanity. It's both of those things. It's not one or the other. And finally, and most importantly, it is the master and the servant. You know, Northrop Fry said, the world as we know it comes to an end when the master and the servant become the same person and represent the same thing. And Babette is that. She is the master and the servant. Preeminently that. And so I want to end on the note of the lingering question. Was she or was she not? Is she or is she not a petroless? The word has two roots. Petra, which means rock or Peter, and oleum, which means oil or chrism. 
So it is a petroless operation, the church's operation. It is one that is that involves the rock, what in the mystical tradition sometimes is called the rock of doctrine, and the sacramental oil, the chrism. And it is fire. Jesus said, I came to set fire on the earth and how I wish it were blazing. And the choice really is, as Eliot says, between the pyre and the pyre, to be redeemed from fire by fire. Her job is not uh, only to come and reconcile, as, as she does with this feast, but her job also is as a petroless, uh, to explode those little con consensus realities that we've accommodated to. And just what Jesus meant when he came, I did, said I came to bring uh, uh, not peace but a sword, to explode those little conventional realities. So I just think Babette is a masterful depiction of the spirit of the church. The master and the servant, the reconciler, the petroless, every time you expect her to be one thing and not the other, she's the other. This concludes Reflections on Isaac Dennison's Babette's Feast. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.